This is Michael Osterlink, and this is another episode of Fine Wisdom. That's hashtag Fine, F-E-I-N, Wisdom. I'm here with constitutional scholar Bruce Fine. How you doing, Bruce? I'm doing well today. Thank you, Michael. Fantastic. So we are in April 2015, and uh, so we are working with the Iranians in Iraq against ISIS. We are fighting the Iranians and Hezbollah in Syria. We are supporting or protecting Hezbollah in our in Lebanon against ISIS, and now we're fighting with the Saudis against the Houthis in Yemen, who are a Shiite sect supported by the Iranians. Yeah. Very complex. <laughs> What's your thoughts on this? Whole well, mess? What, what what this um, <clears throat> convoluted situation underscores, Michael, is why we shouldn't be in there at all. That we need to go back to fundamental principles of the formation of our government, which was one of some humility. Uh, unlike the French Revolution that thought that they could change the DNA of mankind and, and fight wars forever, they ended up in Moscow and with an emperor. But our uh, revolution was not messianic. Uh, we understood the enormous advance that we were making over all prior uh, nation-states and civilizations, really, by making liberty the center of our constitutional universe, not building pyramids, uh, pharaonic complex, uh, huge governments for the sake of government and that we understood that our influence abroad, which we coveted, would be the influence of example, and that we wouldn't risk the destruction of liberty at home by these quixotic efforts to take political cultures that are in the Neanderthal age and in thinking we can turn them into some kind of peace-loving democracies that celebrate human rights. It's an utterly idiotic position to take. It is as Foolish as believing if we spent $5 trillion, we could invent a perpetual motion machine. You can't do it. Uh, and why we are in the Middle East in this context is uh, beyond me. Uh, it's some uh, said that we need to keep the oil uh, running. We don't need uh, military to make sure we had oil supplies. Even in the Yom Kippur War, where there was a purported boycott by the Arab countries of both the United States and Israel in the aftermath because we supported Israel. We got all the oil we needed. We just bought it through middlemen. Hugo Chavez of Venezuela sells us oil. We would buy oil. Iran wants to sell us oil. We say we can't buy it. Um, so this idea that you need the military to ensure economic prosperity is utterly absurd and is not supported by anything over 5,000 years of recorded history. Let's look at that historically, because from my understanding, it started, generally speaking, with the Carter Doctrine of keeping the Persian Gulf... Um, it's causes belli if the Persian Gulf was shut down, which, again, right. is utterly and completely insane. Why, if it was cut down, so they sell it to a middleman, we buy it. The Yom Kippur War proved that. And the Yom Kippur War was well before the Carter Doctrine. These doctrines, Michael, are invented to justify a military-industrial complex. And we really want to strip away all the... The, uh, the euphemisms here. The DNA of mankind is savage. Domination for the sake of domination is built into the thrill of the ordinary human. And that's what creates all these wars. The only thing that can temper that is the diffusion, the architecture of power, so that there is no incentive in governments to go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. The reason why the Founding Fathers entrusted the authority to go to war exclusively to Congress was because Congress doesn't get anything from war that is gratuitous. 
They don't get the fame, no obelisk, they don't get the power, all of it migrates to the executive branch. And that's why our foreign policy was based upon the idea no permanent foreign entanglements. We fight wars only in self-defense, period. We wish liberty well abroad, but we fight only to defend our own. And that worked spectacularly well until we became an empire, really beginning with the Mexican-American War, when the founding generation, that, that, that universe of intelligence that really was a giant step forward in thinking about power, had all died or, or passed from the political scene, except the one was John Quincy Adams, and he, of course, opposed the Mexican-American War. Uh, and the House of Representatives at that time voted that it was an illegal war uh, initiated by President James K. Pope. But I want to go back and underscore all of this. Uh, in the Middle East and elsewhere, we're pivoting to Asia. It all is a total, uh, complete capitulation uh, to the idea of empire that we fought to overthrow in 1776. We have come full circle. It seems to me that there's a bipartisan consensus in support of what you're calling empire, yeah. quote unquote empire. Uh, you look, for instance, the um, uh, Bush two uh, Iraq war, the second Iraq war, the second Gulf War, where we invaded and occupied Iraq. That just continued the Clinton doctrine, which was regime change in Iraq. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just the, the same policy being really implemented, as opposed to just airstrikes and missile strikes. We actually sent in ground forces. But there seems very little difference between the Republicans and the Democrats. Was there a time in our history where there was a distinction in worldviews? Uh, very little. I suppose the last time you could find one, you know, because Arthur Vandenberg, who was a big Republican in Congress post-World War II, said that the, that the uh, foreign policy differences stop at the water's edge, which was, I think, quite a foolish decision to make. Uh, the fact is, it's not, uh, division is what creates rethinking, uh, correct errors. Uh, if you just say, salute the president no matter what he wants to do, then you will have folly. But the last time I think that there was a genuinely uh, partisan, if I think, serious debate on foreign policy was uh, Wilson against Henry Cabot Lodge uh, over the League of Nations and whether we were going to be a country that would defend every single border in the entire world from invasion and all at the unilateral decision of the President of the United States that the League of Nations was defeated. Uh, but after that, you know, the, the divisions um, began to lessen and then finally they all evaporated at Pearl Harbor. There was still more Republican resistance in the 1930s, uh, I think rightly so, to gratuitous entry into World War II uh, before we were attacked. I think we were smart to stay out until we had a clear case of self-defense, just like Abe Lincoln in the Civil War. He waited till we were attacked. Then we have a real cause uh, that justifies risking and giving that last full measure of devotion. And we're moving into a state of lawlessness, which is what war is, which is why we had Japanese-American concentration camps in World War II, uh, and did a lot of other terrible things like firebombing of Tokyo and killing massive civilians in, in Dresden and Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, but that was in response to a real war. We were being attacked by countries, Germany and Japan, which had an ability to destroy our complete nation. They have industrial capacities, they had tax powers, they had millions of soldiers, uh, science uh, uh, on their side. They clearly uh, were an existential threat, unlike you know, ISIS, the terrorists, but they're throwing, overthrowing the United States. It seems to me, looking back historically, that after every major war, we demilitarized our society, our institutions, our government. But that didn't seem to happen after the Second World War. We actually created a stronger and more forthright national security state. 
Yes, and I think the reason for that, uh, Michael, is that it was only after World War II that we became the superpower of the world. Remember, at that time, we had the only atom bomb. Uh, I don't know, our, the economy of the world was like 50% the United States. And so we ended up with the first time where we became infected with this psychology of empire. Hey, now we can, now we can march everywhere. And we don't really have much of an opponent except you know, Joe Stalin at the time, and he didn't have the bomb in 1945. Although it, it, it isn't really accurate, I don't think, to suggest that we maintained, you know, the level. We had 12 million people, I think, who were in the armed forces at the conclusion of uh, World War II with the surrender of the Japanese at Tokyo Bay. But, but Truman then, he definitely cut back in terms of those who were serving in the military uh, up to just a million. But then the Korean War came in 1950, and then it was all over. Um, uh, we then had uh, conscription and... Uh, basically the military-industrial complex to a cold, and it's really never diminished since that time. And remember at that time as well, not only the Korean War, but remember we're using the CIA to overthrow Mossadegh in Iran in 1953, 1954, a year after the truce that Eisenhower negotiated with Korea, we're overthrowing the government of Guatemala, we're trying to do the same in Indonesia, that's our beginning consultations in Vietnam to succeed the French there. You know, this is the idea that, again, that we had this worldwide battle against the communists, and the communists were all monolithic even though it was an absurd conclusion at the beginning. China was not uh, Soviet Union. They were at loggerheads with one another. And as is true in all situations of power, this idea that philosophy or ideology controls is ridiculous. Power. That's what these people cling to. Power for the sake of power. And they'll invent anything to justify it. Maybe the, 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 uh, the, the vogue is divine right of kings. Okay, now we have divine right of kings. And then it's the dictatorship of the proletariat. Okay, I have dictatorship of the proletariat. And then it'll be something else. But when you go down to what really drives these countries, and the United States was almost unique uh, as an exception, certainly in 1777, all it is is power for the sake of power, expansion for the sake of expansion, conquest for the sake of conquest. And it's they are not really undertaken for anything that has to do with actual safety or economic prosperity. It's because we go back to this degenerate aspect of the DNA. There's a thrill, even if it's self-destructive thrill, of power and dominating and telling other people, hey, I'm better than you. I can crush you. And that's why you see the memorials around the world, the statutes, who do this being celebrated? People who are excellent at killing other people. Not Socrates, not thinkers, not philosophers who understood it's better to be the victim of injustice or risk being the victim than to be complicit in injustice. Because it is the nature of war, Michael, to commit injustice. You're not killing somebody in self-defense. When you're killing somebody not in self-defense, you're complicit in injustice. Now, it may well be in wartime uh, when you're fighting for the, your existence of a nation. Uh, that's a, you know, a, a last a desperate justification, but it's still complicit in injustice. It's justifiable, as we can talk about Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs. We were killing little babies who couldn't possibly have had any sin. They didn't have enough time. And that is not something, from their point of view, why did they die? We have the idea that, no, you're not to be held responsible for the sins of your father or your parents. Well, why is a child who's two months old responsible for what Hirohito did? He wasn't even around at the time of Pearl Harbor. We, they are disintegrating. And so that's, that is why war needs to be so disfavored.
as a very, very last desperate effort. But I want to go back to this underlying justification, not justification, but explanation of why war persists. You know, it's celebrated in the Old Testament. It's celebrated in the New Testament. You just have to follow Jesus in the New Testament. It's going to be celebrated in the Quran. Even Buddhists, when they did some work in Sri Lanka, you know, they would protest um, uh, peace uh, because they wanted to kill the, the Tamils, who were Hindu and, and Christian. And we need desperately, as a species, not only as a country, to cultivate this greatness of our minds and our moral conscience. We would rather take a risk of being the victim of injustice than to perpetrate it. Uh, and that will be the end of war. We don't get, and we should not get any thrill of just dominating other people, saying, oh, we can crush you. So what? That's a thrill that a five-year-old has in the sandbox when he wants to have all the little castles in the corner. When you're not five years old, you need to move on and be an adult. And you should not get thrills in these sense of, of your identity by how much you can shove other people around, see how tough you are. Rahm Emanuel taking a knife and a stake and said, all oh, these Republicans, we're going to kill them when we're in the White House or something like that. It's just, it's a depraved attitude and it seeps down into the culture. You've written a book on the American Republic uh, and the American Empire. What's the title of your book? American Empire Before the Fall. And there's a companion book, you know, Constitutional Peril, The Life and Death Struggle of Democracy. And both of the books there try to understand the psychology. Why do these problems exist? Why is it that the species seems to get this gratification just expanding your power? Because that's true all over the world. It's not unique to the United States. We have had over 70 other prior empires. They all do the same thing. And even today, I'm not trying to suggest that any other country is, is acting out of noble purposes. No, they aren't. But we need to understand that and say why, other than self-defense, you know, our example is the influence abroad. We need to try to perfect our society and make it as tolerant, as wise, as tough, and gentle, if you will, at the same time, devoted to due process and uh, as, as is possible for the species. And we can't, we can't, it's tough enough as, just as an individual. We're going thousands of miles away treating Neanderthal cultures and think we're going to make them into some kind of gentle, angelic, uh, uh, political uh, uh, nations. It isn't going to be done. Bruce, you blog for the Washington Times and you have your own website. What are those yes. URLs? Uh, the website, www.brucefeinlaw.com. Uh, you'll see my columns there at the Washington Times as well as in Huffington Post from time to time. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you.